This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, Governor Jared Polis is calling for quick action to help jumpstart the state's economic recovery. We'll have more on his State of the State address. Plus, we look at how the pandemic has led to a surge in fake unemployment claims. We started to see a massive uptick in claims in this system that didn't correspond with any kind of public health orders or anything that would explain that other than fraudulent claims being filed. All that and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Lawmakers came back to the state capitol on Tuesday after postponing the session for a month because of COVID-19. Wednesday morning, Governor Jared Polis delivered his usual annual state address to a joint session of the legislature. After a difficult year, he vowed to bring Colorado out of the coronavirus pandemic that's devastated the economy and killed nearly 6,000 residents. KUNC state capitol reporter Scott Franz has more. Polis told lawmakers the state has been bruised, battered, and shaken to its core. But with vaccines being rolled out and case numbers dropping, he sounded optimistic about what lies ahead. This terrible virus isn't quite done with us yet, but we're working hard to end this pandemic and coming out of this traumatic year, we're poised for bold transformational change. If we seize the opportunity here in this chamber, we can live up to our fullest potential to truly create a Colorado for all. He called on members of the House and Senate to pass a stimulus package worth more than $1 billion to jumpstart the economy. From tax relief and loans for small businesses to bolstering key industries like tourism and energy to investments in our main streets, the hearts of our communities. Polis also renewed a promise he's made at his two prior State of the State addresses. My budget request moves forward vital projects starting with much needed repairs on roads across Colorado, from the Eisenhower Tunnel to rural roads that our farmers and ranchers rely on. There were cheers from both sides when he asked lawmakers to end the business personal property tax for tens of thousands of small businesses, like restaurants and bars hard hit by virus restrictions. It will save small businesses time and money and let them focus on what matters, their customers, their service, their products competing in the marketplace. And while many of us take it for granted, the governor also vowed to bring high-speed internet to thousands of rural residents, some of whom have camped out in parking lots or made long drives just to get a good connection during the pandemic. We'll invest in our rural communities, continue bringing broadband to every corner of our state so that students and small business owners from Fort Morgan to Fruta can seize opportunity. But you don't have to leave the Capitol to see the other challenges that Polis and lawmakers are facing. There's a growing camp of people experiencing homelessness near the building. Many businesses and government buildings in downtown Denver still have boarded up windows following months of protests and unrest last summer. And the Capitol has been outfitted with plexiglass dividers and yellow caution tape to try to limit the spread of the coronavirus. Still, Polis urged lawmakers to think big. No more band-aids over gaping wounds. We in this chamber have the power to make bold transformational change that ensures our state lives up to our highest potential. And we can and we will seize that opportunity. Even though they are in the majority, Democrats say they won't act on all of the governor's stimulus proposals right away. Senate Majority Leader Steve Finberg says the plan is to take up things like wildfire prevention funding and shovel-ready broadband projects first. But the next round of that is going to be much larger and much broader and is going to really focus on kind of getting resources and help into the nooks and crannies of our economy. So making sure we're getting resources to to restaurants and bars and helping them prepare to open this spring, making sure we're, we're providing housing assistance and 
and things like that. He says they'll save a debate over transportation funding for the later part of the session, which after a month delay in starting, is expected to run through Memorial Day. But Republicans, like Senate Minority Leader Chris Holbert, are cautioning Polis and Democrats about spending too much on new things. He says education funding should be restored first. Managing expectations with the people of Colorado is critical. We are not Congress in those $600 checks that we received early this year. Those came from the federal government and the federal government can borrow, they can spend money that it doesn't actually have. And while Polis had almost unilateral authority to respond to the pandemic while lawmakers were away for much of last year, Republicans are also pursuing a handful of bills aiming to strip Polis and future governors of some of their powers. Hugh McKean is the new minority leader in the House. There is a necessity to bring the legislature in to do its job, which is to craft the laws and rules for the state. And so if we don't do that just because we're in session for 120 days and then it's carte blanche when we're not there, I think that 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 really runs afoul of the intent of the Constitution. The bills have little chance of advancing with Democrats in control, but other parts of the Polis agenda are up in the air, including whether to pursue a new public health insurance option and more police reform proposals. Lawmakers have already introduced more than 200 bills just this week. I'm Scott Franz at the State Capitol. Recovering from the economic impacts of the pandemic has been a slow process for Colorado and much of the nation. And as we heard, it will certainly be a focus for the governor and state lawmakers during the session. The state managed to gain back thousands of jobs that had been lost in spring of 2020, but those employment gains stalled out in November and December, according to a new report. Here with more on that is Lucas High, reporter for Biz West. Lucas, glad to have you joining us. Aaron, thank you so much for having me. So let's start with a few numbers here. Um, how many jobs did Colorado lose during the height of the shutdowns due to COVID-19? And how many of those jobs came back over the summer and fall? The state lost nearly uh, 343,000 jobs. It's a crazy huge number between February and April. The good news is we added back uh, about 216,000 of those between May and October. However, as, as you mentioned, in November and December, we, we kind of reversed course a little bit. Uh, we lost 25,000 jobs. So rather than building on successes that we had in the spring and fall, we backtracked a little bit. We, we, we regressed and lost, uh, lost 25,000 jobs. And Colorado had been one of the best states in the nation when it came to unemployment before the pandemic. How did that change? You know, it, it's really kind of a stark comparison. So in February, uh, before um, we started seeing the, the, the effects of the pandemic, uh, Colorado had an unemployment rate of two and a half percent, extraordinarily low. You know, by the time December rolled around, that figure was was back up to uh, to 8.4 percent. And, you know, there there are a lot of potential reasons for why that could have been. For example, uh, the first round of PPP, the Paycheck Protection Program, you know, may have run out. So so employers that were able to keep uh, employees on through the through the spring and summer due to, to the PPP funding, you know, maybe uh, weren't able to do so in the later months of, of the year. And, uh, you know, it's certainly possible. Uh, I'm not sure that I uh, I subscribe to this particular philosophy, but there are some that do that that, that's, that think that that folks, uh, you know, who are already receiving unemployment benefits, maybe just haven't decided to jump back into the labor force yet. And, you know, the, the other big thing is, you know, Colorado has done a pretty good job as far as rolling back 
COVID-19, you know, new infections and new cases and new hospitalizations. But in doing so, you know, we've had some pretty strict restrictions as far as in-person dining and other businesses that, um, you know, that, that have had capacity restrictions that other states haven't. So you look at a a restaurant that may have been able to survive a few months of, um, you know, 25% capacity or 50% capacity. But by the time you get to November and December, they've been operating at lower capacities for months and months and months and just maybe wouldn't be able to kind of hold on for any longer. According to this report that you looked at from the Secretary of State's office and the University of Colorado Leeds Business Research Division, it noted that the hospitality sector was one of the hardest hit in Colorado. That's not too surprising. Was the pandemic the driving factor? There are a couple of factors. You know, the pandemic is 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 obviously the biggest one. But when you look at Colorado's hospitality industry, you know, obviously ski resorts play a huge role in that. And ski resorts have been kind of hit with a double whammy this winter. You know, obviously there are restrictions in terms of capacity. There are concerns from visitors who um, in other years may have decided to come visit Aspen or Vail uh, from, uh, from other countries or other parts of our country who just simply don't want to get on a plane anymore. But then there's also the issue of, of weather. Uh, we've had a very, very dry a uh, very dry winter, which impacts the slopes, which impacts folks being able to get out there on, on the fresh powder that everyone kind of comes to Colorado uh, to to ski and snowboard on. It, it just really, there hasn't been enough snow this year. It's just kind of a matter of that. And, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned kind of the hospitality sector uh, more generally. It's, it's interesting to look at Colorado in, in comparison to other states that have uh, a really important tourism and hospitality industry. So we're talking about places like Hawaii or places like Nevada with Las Vegas. And, and they've actually seen similar trends that we have here in Colorado in terms of a, a bit of a slower recovery than some other parts of the country. That's good to know. So when this pandemic is all just a distant memory, it sounds like economists would expect to see a rebound for Colorado and other states. So economists are expecting a rebound. There are a couple of caveats to that, of course. Firstly, they're, they're, they're saying, you know, kind of don't don't get your hopes up for an immediate comeback. This is going to take months and, and likely years. So, you know, we're talking, you know, 2023-ish until we see employment levels reaching pre-pandemic levels. And, and really, it's dependent on how successful, you know, the state is at, at getting folks vaccinated. If you look at kind of another report that the folks up at CU put out, they put out a quarterly business confidence index report, which is actually a really interesting one. Essentially, it provides a score for how confident business leaders are feeling about the overall economy. So essentially, a score of 50 means neutral. They, they, they just kind of don't feel optimistic, nor do they feel pessimistic. Under 50, pessimistic, over 50, feeling feeling more optimistic. So for Q1, the quarter that we're currently in, business leaders had a confidence index score of 47.9. So relatively pessimistic. And that's for, that's for Q1 of 2021. But that jumps up to uh, 59.5 after Q1. So the, the thought is, you know, as we get farther into the year and more and more Coloradans get vaccinated and we're able to roll back some of the some of the restrictions as far as in-person dining and, and gyms and things like that, you know, we we will get back to an economy that, that looks a little bit more like it did last February. But like I said, it, it, it's it's going to take a while. Lucas High is a reporter for Biz West. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Aaron. 
You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. The pandemic has left millions of people across the country without jobs and created an opportunity for hackers and identity thieves to use info obtained by data breaches to apply for unemployment benefits. This type of fraud is rampant in Colorado. Victims of unemployment fraud who had previously submitted reports to the state were finally contacted via email in early February and notified those reports are under investigation. That's after weeks or even months with no word from the Colorado Department of Labor and Employment. Gavin Dahl from KVNF has more on how the state is moving forward with helping fraud victims. They were invited to an online-only event hosted in collaboration with the Colorado Attorney General's office called How to Protect Yourself from Data Breaches and Identity Theft. Daniel Chase is CDLE Chief of Staff. We started noticing a a trend in our systems starting in June of, of 2020. If you recall, the CARES Act was passed in March and created what's called the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance System, which allows people who were not otherwise eligible for unemployment to collect benefits like gig workers, independent contractors, uh, and others that that wouldn't have been eligible otherwise. This created a system that that didn't have many checks and balances in place, and so we started to see a massive uptick in claims in this system that didn't correspond with any kind of public health orders or anything that would explain that other than fraudulent claims being filed. As victims learned a stranger had filed for unemployment in their names, they were instructed to fill out a Google form on the CDLE website. But because Governor Jared Polis had issued an executive order early on during the pandemic that required the Labor Department to pay claims no more than 10 days after applications were filed, CDLE staff couldn't keep up with reviewing fraud reports from victims before making payments. While the state aims to help victims of fraud and clean up this mess, the biggest priority remains getting money to out-of-work residents with valid claims. Here's CDLE Executive Director Joe Barella. Since the pandemic began in Colorado, we've seen just over a million valid claims uh, in the system, people who have been impacted, their work has been impacted, that are eligible for unemployment insurance, and we've paid benefits to those individuals. We've seen over 1.1 million potentially fraudulent claims. Our system is holding or has held claims because of they've triggered identity triggers we have in the system. Uh, Before the pandemic started, uh, we probably had less than five triggers uh, in the system. But because of the pandemic unemployment system, the rampant fraud, we now have over 50 triggers that could trigger a hold on a case. And so, as you would imagine, the amount of resources and time that goes into fraud detection, fraud prevention, and uh, investigation and enforcement is competing with our main mission is getting out benefits to people who really need financial assistance because of a wage loss. Some victims of unemployment fraud are opening their mail and finding 1099 tax documents from the state for benefits they never requested and in most cases never received. The CDLE has a form for this on their website too. Once fraud victims have filled out all the state's forms, notified credit agencies, filed police reports, and begun the waiting game, they've found answers aren't easy to come by. That's because the Labor Department's call center is designed to help the nearly 300,000 people who are seeking legitimate benefits, not fraud victims. Again, here's Joe Barella. I just want to make sure it's really clear that there's opportunities for you to, as a worker or an employee, 
go online and fill out the fraud form if you think your identity has been misused. As an employer, go online and fill out the fraud form if you think your uh, employee's identity was stolen. Inform your employers. If you get a 1099-G, go online and fill out the form. That is the fastest way to take care of that. If you're trying to call our call center, our call center is really designed for benefit administration and payment. And that's right now in Colorado, we still have over 280,000 people on unemployment insurance that really need to get questions that's holding up that's holding up legitimate payments out the door that they need to handle. So by asking questions about fraud or trying to talk to someone about fraud, it's, it's preventing those people who actually need benefits from getting the help they need to get those benefits out the door as quickly as possible. So I know as a victim of identity theft, you feel like you've been violated and you have, but we have ways for you to take care of that and report that online and I strongly encourage you to make sure you're doing it online or you're going to get frustrated because you can't get through to the call center as well. For KVNF News and the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition, I'm Gavin Dahl. The Equal Justice Initiative is a nonprofit organization based in Montgomery, Alabama, which works to end mass incarceration, excessive punishment, and racial inequality in the U.S. The EJI opened the Legacy Museum there in 2018 and has launched a number of projects dedicated to exploring the lasting impact of slavery and to honor the lives of those lost to racist hate crimes. One of those efforts, the Community Remembrance Project, works with local communities to help uncover the lost stories of lynchings, including here in Colorado. Jennifer Taylor is a senior attorney at the Equal Justice Initiative who works with some of those community organizations, and she joins us now. Jennifer, welcome to Colorado Edition. Happy to be a part of the conversation. At the Legacy Museum, there's a narrative that slavery never really truly ended in the United States. It just evolved and specifically evolved into the mass incarceration of people of color. Can you tell me more about that pipeline and how slavery has disguised itself in modern society? Yes. At the same time that we understand that enslavement involved taking people from Africa and forcing them to work, it was also about creating ideas about why that kind of mistreatment was okay. And those were ideas that had to do with creating a racial hierarchy and arguing that African-Americans were a type of people that it was important to exert a certain kind of control over. And so at the point that African-Americans are emancipated, there is not ever a point in which those ideas are eradicated. So new institutions emerge, including lynching, Jim Crow, and also mass incarceration. I wanted to ask about the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. This is a large monument in Montgomery that recognizes victims of lynching in America. What is the message of this monument and, and who is it for? Our aim is to both highlight the individual incidents of lynching and also encourage people to understand that this was also a mass attack against the entire African-American community. Because each time a lynching took place, in addition to the particular person who was harmed, it also had an impact on any African-American person who heard about it because each person knew that that could happen to any of them. 
and they knew that law enforcement and other officials were not interested in holding the mobs accountable. And so our aim is for it to serve as both a place that people can come to if they don't have information about this history, but it can also be a place that people can come to who know about this painful history and have a personal connection to it and have had to hold that pain for a long time. We want this site to be a place that people can come to for conversation and healing. To create this memorial, staff with the Equal Justice Initiative researched and uncovered lynchings across the country. Many of these went unreported at the time that they occurred. Can you talk about how your team works with individual communities to research and then to reveal these stories? We started our research about a decade ago. We were certainly able to pull from a lot of existing information and then also made an effort to add more information through our own review of historical records. No matter how many incidents of lynching we are able to compile, it will always be an undercount because there are always going to be incidents that weren't reported and that people in the local communities were afraid to talk about. Part of how we continue the research is through our community remembrance project in which we partner with people in communities who have a local history of a lynching and they're interested in increasing public awareness of it, either by erecting a historical marker or organizing some other kind of an event. And that's often an opportunity for us to collect new information about the lynching because our local partners are often able to get access to archives and additional information. According to the EJI, there are five identified lynchings in Colorado. That number includes the murder of Preston Porter Jr. For those of us who don't know, can you share a bit about this story, what happened to Preston, and how your team has memorialized him today? This is a lynching that happened in November of 1900. He was only 15. It's an incident in which after a white woman was murdered, he and um, some other members of his family were identified as people that officials were interested in investigating. It's pretty clear that race was the primary thing that caused officials to focus on them in the first place. There wasn't really evidence that connected them to the crime all. But after they were arrested, the police claimed that he had admitted that he was involved. And after that was made public, before he was able to stand a trial, before the state had to present any evidence, and before he had an opportunity to defend himself, a mob of over 300 white people pulled him from a train and lynched him by burning him alive. There are a lot of newspaper articles that provide a lot of specific information, how he begged for his life. And several of the newspaper articles even provide identities of some of the people who participated in the mob. Despite that information, the official investigation concluded that he was killed by unknown persons and no one was ever held accountable for the lynching. Afterward, lawmakers in the state of Colorado were so embarrassed by the attention that was accorded to the lynching, they ultimately passed a law to reinstate capital punishment because it was an argument that the lynching had happened because they didn't have capital punishment anymore. And so it's also 
also a case that really highlights that connection between capital punishment and lynching. It's a horrific case, and it's also a case that has been a part of our community remembrance project because last November, around the time of the 120th anniversary of the lynching, we were able to partner with a local community who had organized to erect a marker about the lynching so that it is now less of a hidden part of the state's history. A lot of people hearing this story might be surprised to know that any lynchings, um, and especially one so brutal involving someone so young, occurred in Colorado. What would you say to Coloradans just learning about this history? I think I would encourage anyone that we don't want to respond to our painful history by hiding from it. It's important that we confront it so that we can learn from it and identify how it's continuing to impact us and do everything possible to stop ourselves from repeating those same horrific events. Jennifer Taylor is a senior attorney at the Equal Justice Initiative. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. You can visit the historical marker dedicated to Preston Porter Jr. in downtown Denver, as well as the site where he was lynched and where the EJI collected soil as part of their remembrance project in Lyman. That's our show for today. On the next Colorado edition, we'll hear about efforts to rein in or ban the use of ketamine in law enforcement encounters. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Ray Solomon, Tess Novotny, and Alana Schreiber. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.